0: From reviews to rankings, the big picture is all things movies. From in-depth analysis of the latest flick to sit-down interviews with some of the biggest movie stars and filmmakers on the planet, Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins have got you covered. Check out The Big Picture on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages,
0: In sports to have to clear the room.
2: Stand up and walk. Now.
1: Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me live from the Hex,
2: it's Aiden Greenwald! It's the most wonderful time of the year.
1: What time is They're
2: that? Thursdays.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I love Thursdays with you, man. Greenwald, uh, I'm in a really good mood today. I don't know about you, but I just feel like the sun came back out here in Los Angeles. A giant oak tree fell around the corner from my house. And I just saw the city come together and just carve that bad boy up and just like take care of it and buses, that, you know, are Agatha, running on time. the Harkness. No, it was just actually like you know the the Garcetti just just pushed the button and and the lumberjacks came out. I didn't even know that the at LA had a, a squad like that. So the vibes are good uh, today on the show. We're going to talk a little bit about Wandavision going into the finale. So by the time you hear this. Uh, you may you may have already watched the finale for all I know, but I thought we would talk a little bit about that. And as an extension of some of our, a little bit of our collective breakdown that we had on Monday's pod, I thought we would address that. I also want to get into the only film that I will be watching for the rest of 2021, which is Amazon Original Films' as Tom Clancy's Without Remorse, which is a movie that was made from, like, they took a piece of my DNA, like the Prometheus alien, and just made a movie out of it. We're also going to talk a little bit about Party Down coming back. Uh, Where do you want to go first?
2: And It's a Sin. We're talking It's a Sin. Of
1: course, yeah. And we're also talking about the best show of the year. It's a Sin. So we finished that. So I would say it's a five-episode show. It's me and Andy's favorite show of the year so far. So save the second half for when you have finished the show, I would say. We're going to talk with spoilers. But uh, Andy and I wanted to devote the second half of today's show to It's a Sin.
2: Yes. But first, everyone's favorite topic, uh, WandaVision. I just wanted to come back and say you were very kind to say that we had a collective meltdown. I think I, think I had a did. meltdown yeah. personally on Monday. And um, specifically, I just wanted to say that like, I don't love some of the things that I said on Monday in retrospect, and I kind of wanted to address it and also just kind of apologize. Basically, um, first of all, my opinions about the show I stand by <laughs> and we'll continue to talk about uh, in detail on next Monday after we've seen the finale. But as Chris was alluding to, you know, we we kind of got swept up in talking about the discourse around the show, which is a little bit meta, a little bit tricky, a little bit difficult to manage and juggle and probably not the best move, especially if you also have a case of the Mondays, as I definitely did. And what happened was I mentioned a tweet that I had seen by somebody I think I mentioned it.
1: I think I, right, mean, but, I mentioned it. Yeah. But, but
2: I had seen it, you know, by Madison Hatfield. And I didn't even name her because I did the thing that people do on Twitter that I don't like particularly and I don't like in myself for doing, which is basically didn't really see who wrote it, didn't consider the context at all, just saw the words and fed it into my own personal emotional combustion engine and created a straw man or in this case, a straw woman that was kind of expressing feelings that I was already prepared to be kind of annoyed about. And that was totally unfair to Madison and also probably by extension to the listeners of this podcast her opinions are valid. Her opinions are her own. She's a talented writer in her own right, and also there was a lot more going on there. I don't think she's the mega fan that the Twitter megaphone turned her into. Sure. And so I reached out. I apologized to her uh, privately, and she was gracious enough to say it was okay to share that with everybody here. But that's just not the kind of person or podcaster I want to be. And I feel like I kind of got heated. And it's. Yeah. Inter- I mean, it, we we could we could get into why I think that clearly this show represents kind of a tipping point for us and our coverage, which is it almost less about the show itself, which, you know, I think remains a solid B, B minus, and maybe it'll raise itself up before Monday, but just our own deep, deep ambivalence about the coming uh, franchise IP tsunami and how we fit into it and how we're going to cover it. And so that's a separate conversation. I think, uh, As Chris alluded to, I see the sun shining through his window. I feel exercised a little bit. Sure. As opposed to feeling exercised, which I did on Monday.
1: (laughs) Where where to start with this? I think it's worth, if you don't mind, like pulling the curtain back a little bit and saying that I, I feel like there has been an accelerated cycle that reminds me a little bit of Thrones with this, where something becomes central and sort of essential to talking about pop culture like WandaVision has. And some people might be like, if you just don't like it, why would you talk about it? And I think that that's actually been a rule that we've abided by for the majority of the near decade that we've been doing this podcast. Like people often will be like, you guys haven't talked about this. You guys haven't talked about that for certain shows. And Mm -hmm. for the most part, the reason why Andy and I don't do that is either we haven't had a chance to really dive into it or we didn't particularly care for it, but we're not here to piss on anybody's party. You know, so like if you like that show... Mm -hmm. Well, you don't need two guys being like. Hey, here's why this show isn't as good as people think it is, and I feel annoyed that I let myself fall into that with Wandavision. Mostly because I actually think Wandavision's pretty good. Like we've, if you go back the six weeks that we've been talking about this, or the seven weeks that we've been talking about this, we definitely started out on the right foot. I think I have always expressed my feeling that I was much more. Uh, I think I appreciated the craftsmanship of the show way more than I connected with the show. And that's just me being honest about like whether or not something is unlocking anything for me. The same way that I think when we talk about it's a sin, I almost had a hard time understanding the craftsmanship of the show because it was so emotionally overwhelming. Do you know what I mean? Like these things totally. can go in different ways. You can experience culture in so many different ways. It's the same reason why like you can love a piece of punk rock that's barely two chords And not care for prog rock, that's clearly the work of people who went to the Berklee School of Music. I mean, everything has a purpose in your life. I would just say with WandaVision, though, like with the Thrones thing, I remember towards the end of Thrones, it just felt like you were dragging a boulder up a hill. You know, because you felt like already everything was about what wasn't going to work out with it you know and i i felt that way unfortunately with something like wandavision which i think is clearly experimental for disney not necessarily experimental in the grand scheme of avant-garde art but just like a kind of a left turn for disney and for marvel and i think all of a sudden i got very caught up in a lot of the same feelings i had towards the end of thrones where it was like this isn't they're not pulling off what they think they're pulling off or Mm -hmm. what people have been led to believe this thing is, is actually, it's not going to be that. And that honestly doesn't really have too much to do with the story they're telling, the performances that are telling that story and everything else. So I I do feel, I feel bad about that. You know, it was funny, like, I, I don't know the validity of this story, but like, you know, Paul Bettany gave some interview and he was basically like, I am the Luke Skywalker cameo? Like the Luke Skywalker level cameo that people were referring to is mm-hmm. me still is me being white vision at the end of the show. And now I feel like Paul Bettany is my number 1 draft pick for dudes who may not have checked their email and been like, "Oh yeah, by the way, Reed Richards is on this show." <laughs> like he may have no idea if yeah. something else is coming and he might also be Benedict Cumberbatching this where Benedict Cumberbatch had to swear for like two years that he wasn't con in Star Trek and, and then like was like, psych, I oh. am.
2: Also, I wouldn't be surprised if Benedict Cumberbatch is in tonight's that's episode m- of WandaVision.
1: As con, yeah. Potentially <laughs> as con.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I agree with you. I think that in retrospect, what I realized that's been happening in front of everyone's eyes as a slow motion car crash for the last seven, eight weeks for me is this kind of, creeping realization that disney's gonna disney and it actually comes from a place of perhaps unwarranted optimism about television as a storytelling medium and it happened with mandalorian 2 which isn't to say that i expect these projects to be as emotionally engaging and bold as it's a sin or as the leftovers or other or even damon's Watchmen. you know other shows that we like and admire it's that I I love the idea that they're going to be left alone to be their own thing because that's really the dream of any creator in any medium, right? Is to like be able to carve out a little something that feels aesthetically right to his or her or their taste. Yeah. And we were much more enthusiastic about, well, I'll, I'll use I statements to be no, careful you, here. But I, 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 I was I much more enthusiastic about The Mandalorian when it felt like John Favreau's weird A-team slash... Samurai movie slash classic Spaghetti Western. Spaghetti Western, yeah. That was just on the margins, you know? And then Luke Skywalker shows up and I have a lot more complicated feelings about it because it, in fact, it is just the same thing we've been watching all along. And I think that those first two, three episodes of WandaVision were really exciting to me because I thought, and to a degree, they have allowed it. I mean, it's, it, it's true. It's different. It's a little stranger. There's no question about that. But part of me believed maybe Charlie Brown with the football that this was going to turn into something kind of weird and psychological and it's it's weirder it's mm-hmm. more psychological sure. but it but it is the same thing and i think i need to you know recalibrate myself accordingly um which is not a problem for me or the wildly successful show <laughs> i just sort of needed to to punch that into my synthesoid mainframe and and the the only other thing that i wanted to say while we're doing a little mea culpaing and responding to the responses is, you know, I I admit it, I, I unintentionally made it personal and people got very upset. And I noticed people also made it personal about me, about mm. my own failings and inability to write something like WandaVision, which I will say very clearly, I couldn't do this. I'm not sure. claiming that my ability as a critic or even as a screenwriter is equal to this. This is hard. I'm saying that I'm capable of giving Chris pretty decent to good Recipes for chicken marinades for his barbecue grill, I'm not telling him how to micro engineer the cool ranch flavor to put on his homemade chips. you know what I mean sure that's a skill and to do it and still have the ambition and the heart to come up with interesting lines about grief to have the in jokes within the in jokes i mean i I remain in awe of the production yeah um it, it it's this but this has been this has been helpful honestly to help like realign. Where we are, and also where we are in relation to the show, which is just a perfectly good if or slash fine show yes, it's, it's not it's not as big. I don't as think the that you and I started around.
1: this week to week journey thinking that we would end here where we were like, well, we certainly didn't think we would end like basically walking back like the vitriol that we had on Monday, but I think that we didn't anticipate getting to this point where we would be this frustrated with the show, and yeah. I don't know that our frustration really has anything to do with what we're seeing on screen. I think it's two people kind of working out this honestly like kind of fucked up like push pull relationship we have to the ip that we talk about all the time and you know sure we 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 try to give as much time as we can to the stuff that we love no matter what it is so whether it's mandalorian or it's i may destroy you or it's things that like nobody cares about apparently like the head you know like we'll talk about it and enjoy it and I think that with WandaVision, we were like, this This requires like a weekly check-in. This requires a State of the Union every week. That being said, before we get into the final episode tonight, I mm-hmm. did want to kind of steal a couple of questions from Daniel Chin's excellent Loose Ends piece. So Daniel Chin's been uh, recapping the show every week for The Ringer, and he's been doing a fantastic job on that, much like Lindbergh did with Mandalorian. And then I also just wanted to recommend that people check out Charles Holmes's piece on basically everything that andy and i just talked about which is like our relationship to wandavision and what people want from this show versus what the show is actually giving them and it also has some deep dive on some of the comic stuff but daniel had a loose ends piece just saying like here going into this final episode what are some questions so i thought i would just like throw these at you and you tell me not like how much you care about them but whether or not you think that they're important to answer does that sound good okay sure okay so what's up with Fig pietro like, do you um, do you think that that is something that they need to account for? That that is the the whether it's the Fox crossover part, the multiverse part, or whether this is just an Agatha tr- trick. If it's just an Agatha trick, what do you think of that?
2: Well, I think it's all of it. And I think that speaks to, you know, the, the brilliance of this creative team at Marvel. It's not just about making the right choices in the moment. It's about the optionality to steal a word from ESPN uh, analysts. It can be all of those things. It was a knowing wink to people who were eagerly anticipating an answer to the question of how Kevin Feige is going to integrate the X-Men and the Fox property into the MCU. It was also, as was revealed in the last week, kind of, you know, a meta, a meta wink uh, from the characters herself, from Agatha basically being like, I couldn't, I had, I had to recast. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is it ends there for the purposes of this show. But real heads know, multiverses are coming. X-Men and the Fox integration, such as it is, is coming. And this allows, it's just a clever way for, for for Feige and his team to keep the ball in the air without committing one way or another. So Evan Peters could play Quicksilver again in the MCU. Evan Peters this is clear. could
1: referee the Deadpool-Logan fight that I want.
2: That you want so badly. <laughs> right. We don't know. And they probably have made some decisions, but we don't know and we don't need to know yet. But it, it keeps it keeps it in the air.
1: Next loose end is... Who is the missing person that Jimmy Wu is looking for?
2: Oh my God, I don't even remember. Was that, remember was that? that what br- brought him into S.W.O.R.D. Yes. in the beginning?
1: Yeah. That's what brings him across the country from San Francisco to uh, to, to Westview. Because he's I, hope Bo- I hope
2: it's Bobby Cannavale's character from the Ant-Man movies.
1: It's, I hope it's Bobby Cannavale's character from Vinyl.
2: I hope it's Bobby Cannavale's character from, <laughs> <laughs> from Boardwalk Empire missing in New Jersey. I, I,
1: I, could, I could help them out with that case. <laughs> um... What's up with the twins? Is this magic? Or are we going to get the new Avengers? What's up, Young Avengers? Uh, is... Young Avengers. This young is Avengers.
2: Um, this is the big question. I think that that is of interest to me for what they want to do with the character um, and the idea of chaos magic or whatever is going forward. In the comics, they had it both ways; they were made up, and now they're also Young Avengers. Cool. And I, I'm so sorry. I do not remember how they uh, squared that particular circle. My guess is she made them up and or that they are going to put them away um what you know while they set up whatever's coming next is it possible that the next move for wanda is to as as now a a magic user in this in this universe will she go seek out dr stephen strange can you help me because i know there are multiverses out there where my children are real where vision is alive where Evan Peters is Pietro, can I? Can you help me find them? Perhaps in a multiverse of madness, coming to theaters near you. I mean, I hope that could be, she, that, that could be a setup.
1: I hope, I hope when she finds them, they've aged to like their early to mid thirties, and they are played by Garrett Hedlund and Tim Riggins, or Garrett Hedlund and Taylor Kitsch, the two Tim I also, Rigginses.
2: I also would like that. He, here, here's here's my real. <laughs> and it's answer just to like it.
1: instead of the Spider-Man meme, it's two guys standing in Sheerling jean jackets pointing at each other.
2: <laughs> I just, I would watch that series. Make
1: making the hookem sign <laughs>
2: <laughs> to each to each other. Yeah. Um. Back in my Grandland TV critic days, you know, what, I I love to point out that like I there are many there there are a number of unforced errors that that writers TV writers often make, but none greater than giving characters children when the writers actually don't want to tell stories about people with children. Carrie having Brody's baby on Homeland being yeah. one of the most egregious examples. And then just
1: giving it to her sister.
2: <laughs> yeah, just be like, take this baby. I have to go run around in Germany for a year. Um, <laughs> and I, to be clear, I fully respect the writers being like, we don't really want to do that. We'd rather, it's a better story for the show of Homeland, which is not Herskovitz and Zwick, you know, emotional drama. All this is sad. I don't think the Marvel team is going to make that unforced error. I don't think they, they want to, especially with, with this, all the work they put into building Wanda as a major character Um, and superhero in this universe, I don't think they're going to make her a single mom because that's not the story that they're going to tell
1: at this moment. Best example of great parenting on television that I've seen recently is in the Netflix show Behind Her Eyes, which I watched recently. And um, in the middle of the season, it's like six episodes, uh, the main character, Louise, who is ensconced in a love triangle with a psychiatrist and his disturbed wife, Mm -hmm. uh, sends... After multiple episodes of her, like, not wanting to do this, sends her young son to France with her ex-husband, just expressly so that she can just get up to some completely wild shit on the show and nobody has to be like, who's watching Adam, her son? It's fantastic. That's great. Yeah.
2: The, The, um, this will come up probably in our later conversation about It's a Sin. It might come up if we ever get the opportunity to talk to It's a Sin's creator, Russell Davies, but I've been watching his previous series years and years. Yeah. Which is available to stream on HBO and HBO Max. It is absolutely traumatic. I cannot believe anyone on planet Earth watched this during the year I it was did. released, twenty twenty. I, yeah. I I can barely white knuckle my way through it now. But of all the horrific things in it, and for people who don't know, it's it's basically about the near future with a rise of like uh, horrific like uh, war and environmental crises and immigration. A second second yeah. Trump term leading to a Pence term and the rise of fascism and nuclear war and banks collapsing and just like everything that felt like it was happening happens in this show. The part that is absolutely like, you know, jump scare, lay awake all night for my household is the fact that in every scene when people, fam this large family is either together or talking to each other via like the, like the, the the in-show Alexa, they are generally talking about things that have happened, like a local MP getting decapitated on live television by a drone or a nuclear strike on an island. And they're having these conversations in front of no less than three children. Like, and they never <laughs> pause to be like, I know you're worried about the nuclear bomb siren going off in all of the world. Instead, they're like, this is the perfect time to get into it. With great grandma about her incipient bias and racism, <laughs> and I'm like, "There are children here. There are children in the room." The I'm gonna first- burn. Yeah,
1: I'm gonna burn through the last couple of uh yeah. of our 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 loose ends. Dotty, played by Emma Caulfield. Um, do you think that she she was definitely presented as somebody who I think we thought might be more important in this story early on when she like cuts her hand at the at the pool party, remember? Oh, right, right. Do you think she has anything coming up next next episode or no? No, she's not canon, is she?
2: Not that I, not that I know of.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the last one is Ralph, which I think on one hand is just like a funny joke that you could say is like a sitcom trope of like my husband, but like I, you know, as we were all sort of like maybe reading too much into this and thinking, you know, is Mephisto coming out of this? Like, what's what's the deal? Like, who's Ralph? Who's her husband? Uh, Do you think that there's a possibility that there is another character reveal possibly there?
2: I think it's possible, but I also think it's worth noting just because I think the the, the lesson that I'm that I'm trying to uh, uh, internalize is that just because this was spread out over eight or nine episodes, the Marvel playbook is still the Marvel playbook Mm -hmm. and they don't need to answer things well too quickly. That, you know, I think it can I also work want to see levels.
1: what so they put the big stars or they put significant stars in this show. I w- still want to see whether or not they'll give up a plot point to a TV show, no matter how important yeah. streaming is to them. Mm-hmm. Will they introduce the villain of the next faves of the MCU in the last episode of a Disney Plus streaming show?
2: I would be very surprised. I think that Feige wasn't lying when he said this TV show exists to set up Doctor Strange 2. I think that the juggled schedule uh, suggests that there wasn't anything crucial happening here. That would that would you know, Falcon and Winter Soldier was supposed to be over before WandaVision began, and now it's leading in reverse order into each other, which makes me think that if suddenly you know Al Pacino and red body paint swaggered out from behind the sword van, and then he's just like gotcha, and then all of a sudden it's back to Prague with our buddies. Bucky and Sam, I, I think feel like that would be tonally tonally strange. I agree. I also yeah. think that for as much credit as we give to Feige and Marvel for flooding the zone with really out there comic book concepts, they are generally smart about the portions in which they deliver them. So this massive restructuring, not just of hinting at a multiverse, not just of completely uh, empowering Wanda to the point of almost abstraction, but making magic. Such an important part of the mm-hmm. Marvel Universe outside of that one movie where um, Khan from the Star Trek universe <laughs> was wearing a cape. Um, that's. I feel like that's probably enough for now.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's all I got because, for, uh, bec- for because Wanda. the thing
2: is, Chris. Like this is this is the the perfect in a way like summation of this mini conversation. They don't need to. Everybody's watching been talking about it and people seem to really love it they have another show coming in two weeks yeah you know what I mean Loki's coming not too far after that like Like a
1: month after that yeah they don't have to
2: they're gonna give us stuff that's entertaining but they don't need to they don't need to break out the big guns
1: let's talk about the real cinematic universe that matters and that's the late Tom Clancy standing on the deck of a a Navy battleship Mm. wearing a hat of that Navy battleship and writing books about the cold war and the post cold war and what that means to to me is as a podcaster but also as an american i cannot explain to our listeners how psyched i am for without remorse i feel like i need it as like a tonic i need it as like an alkaline drink it's going to it's going to revitalize me it's like electrolytes and it stars michael b jordan who will eventually become i guess mr clark in the clancy verse Um, It's his origin story of this like CIA kind of operative, this shadowy, completely off off books guy. And it is directed by Stefano Salima. I I just can't believe
2: this part. I can't believe this.
1: Who directed Sicario, Day of the Soldado, 000, several 000 episodes, and a bunch of Gamora. It also stars Jamie Bell and Guy Pierce splitting the duties of Edward Norton from Born Legacy?
2: They... they. I want to be clear here. They really look like they were split like an atom. Yes. From one character. They, maybe not evenly, because Guy Pierce has a couple inches on J-Bell, but it, it is just wild that they look almost interchangeable in this trailer.
1: And it was written by Taylor Sheridan, who obviously wrote the Sicario movies, wrote, wrote and directed Wind River, and writes and directs Yellowstone. Um... Like it looks sick. It I, I I like I need I need this movie. I need like a great action movie thriller like this. I think it will be absolutely bankrupt of morality. Like yes. it is like a very, very fucked up portrait of like American defense lust. But I still really want to watch it and I want to watch it now.
2: I, I mean I can't believe your karma in getting this because when the I, trailer I deserve
1: it I deserve it I think you've, I you've I had think a rough
2: de- year dad it's fine <laughs> when I when I when I s- heard about the trailer and like this the existence of this yeah this and, is and, funny and and, and and you and and Sean Fantasy started just doing backflips on social about it you know I was like I'm happy for them we, it didn't even mean like I wouldn't watch it but that wasn't like that wasn't on my to-do list and so then in preparation for talking to you today I I fired up the trailer. And then it's... I was like, boy, they're really biting Sicario vibes hard here. The music like the big, is from Sicario. Yeah, it's the big, like, you know, Bum, uh, Prometheus yeah. blats. Boy, two shouts to Prometheus in one show. And
1: then it says that
2: it's Salima and Sheridan. I mean, how did how did one guy get so lucky? Uh, everyone, you, uh, every, not, about every, them.
1: every 15 months, my hand comes through.
2: Here, here's what I want to say about this. And this is also clarifying, I think. Does this look morally bankrupt? Yeah, it sure does. (laughs) But that is not my approach to a movie like this. What I want, Chris, here's what I am. You know what I mean? I'm just an, I'm an old school blue collar coach. You know what I mean? I'm Gene Hackman in Hoosiers, basically. I mean, basically. Almost, you can't really tell the difference. And what I want is I want players in the best position to succeed. And if you're going to make right-wing jerk-off movies like this, make the best possible one yeah. you can.
1: Like, get, and, du- get light dudes from Gamora on fire in their BMWs.
2: And get those people to make it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, don't half-ass this. Don't give me Affleck or Pine. Give me MBJ. You know what I mean? Don't give this to some journeyman, like like a John Turteltaub or something. Give it... To to the bard of bloodshed, (laughs) Stefano Salima. So I'm with you and I'm thrilled and I will gladly lose multiple brain cells to this picture.
1: Here's another hope I have. Is that introducing Clark or, you know, in this film, he's named John Kelly, I think. um,
2: Wasn't John Kelly the the, chief of staff? Yes. (laughs) Are there no Um, more Wonder Bread names to come up with? So what I'm hoping is that,
1: they re- remake clear and present danger with Krasinski and Jordan. And they they recalibrate the Jack Ryan that we have now back to a little bit more of the analyst dork that he's supposed to be in the right. books. A bunch of people on our Slack were talking about this yesterday and they were right. Like Bauman was talking about like Jack Ryan's supposed to be like an analyst who keeps finding himself in fish out of water situations, not like right. a greased up dude who like is able to fight his way out of situations. Yeah. So I'm hoping you you sound like me
2: saying Spider-Man shouldn't be wearing Tony Stark armor. We're basically making the same point. Same point.
1: Um, really quick party down. We're excited. That's got it. Oh my God. So you do it.
2: Yeah. I mean, do you guys know about this show? You must right? that one of the great, great comedies of the pre streaming prestige era was this show party down that relatively few people saw when it was on. It was on Mm -hmm. stars produced by Paul Rudd and Rob Thomas, who did Veronica Mars and many other shows created by and run by, um, John Enbaum. And it was about a group of struggling actors who were working as cater waiters in Los Angeles. And it, it, it starred Adam Scott and Lizzie Kaplan, Ken Marino, um, Martin star season, Martin star first season, Jane Lynch, second season, Megan Mullally. Um, it, was everything that I love about TV. It was so deeply funny, but had the most wonderful, you just kind of love these losers sense of uh, community and spirit. And also had these like, these sneaky low bass notes of genuine emotion and romance that just made it absolutely irresistible. Two seasons are basically perfect. I realized that I had completely forgotten. I recapped the second season for, for Vulture. And it's the kind of project that there's so much goodwill towards it. But Chris Albrecht, who was running Stars, didn't really feel like it was worth holding on to. Many years have passed with talk of like everybody seemed to want to get back together and do it. But now they have made it work. And I don't know whether it came from the goodwill from like a, a live read they did in the fall, but or maybe just Albrecht's gone from Stars. And the show, I should note, is streaming on Hulu. So hopefully, many, 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 many more people have found it. But this is one of those rare reboots that just fills me with happiness because everyone involved is fantastic. Yeah. The reasons for doing it seem so good, but also the central conceit, which is that these people know in their bones they're not going to make it. You jump forward 10 years.
1: I'm fascinated to see where the characters wind up.
2: There's a lot of potential pathos and comedy there in a way that's that's really nice. And it's, it's just, this isn't exactly my... Amazon presents Jack Ryan's Without Remorse, but it's pretty exciting. It's just a it's a purely happy story.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited for it. You know, that that show and Eastbound were the two mm-hmm. that really woke me up to the possibilities of what comedy could do on TV in this era and so it's really cool. Obviously McBride has continued to make not variations on Eastbound, but kind of variations on Eastbound and continued to put out really good stuff, but I feel like this group of people still had a lot of stuff to say and do. uh, And so I'm really glad that they're coming back.
2: Did the shows you mentioned also open you up to the possibilities of what Adam Scott could do on television? Or was it the graphic H.J. he received in Tell Me You Love Me that That really made it clear?
1: (laughs) I I already had tons tons of Adam Scott stock because of that. Um, Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll discuss It's a Sin. To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile for more details.
0: This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So, when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm.
1: Okay, man, we're going to talk about the final three episodes of It's a Sin. I think we addressed the first two episodes in our initial conversation, uh, just to sort of remind folks about what it is in case they don't know. And we're going to be doing spoilers here. So if you don't know, you might want to just hold on to this conversation until you finish the show itself. It's created by Russell T. Davies and entirely directed by a guy named Peter Hoare, uh, who I'd never heard of before, but does absolutely astonishing work. Especially did
2: great work on The Umbrella Academy.
1: Okay. And so he did, what he does in this final episode, I think is worthy of recognition that we can save when we're talking about the final episode itself. But I was absolutely blown away by some of the staging of the final episode. And I thought it might be kind of cool to start here, which is one thing that's nice about seeing a show like this is we increasingly are talking about um, the cinema or mov- movieification of TV and scope and grandeur and whether it's Tour directors, or whether it's bringing big-budget special effects and multi-film franchise storytelling to television. But I felt like, especially in the last two episodes of It's a Sin, and especially, especially in the last episode of It's a Sin, fittingly enough, given the occupation of some of the characters, I felt like I was watching an absolutely magical play. And part of that was because I felt like they were communicating... Social and historical ideas through these characters in an incredibly economical way that didn't require huge set pieces or over the top nods to like the time period that it was taking place in. Like they were able to do those things with one music drop Mm -hmm. and maybe one outfit change or a reference to something political happening, something on the TV. But the way in which they wrap this show up, which is at once incredibly true to the characters involved, but also is this amazing dialogue of ideas that still probably, that matters so much and that really shaped how that time was experienced both by the people who were affected by the AIDS crisis, but also how we understand it. I thought it was unbelievable. Like There's a couple of scenes towards the end of the series where... Richie, who's the main character's mother, is having a conversation with Jill, who is essentially being Richie's caretaker for the final few years of his life. And the back and forth that they have, which will sear your eyebrows off and is really tough to hear, I just don't necessarily think we get to see characters of that complexity articulating such complicated adult ideas very often on television. And so I was just, I kind of thought we could start there. And and kind of work our ways backwards.
2: I think there are two conversations to have about uh, about the show, Um, both equally valid, but both are inextricably linked. One is the, uh, not surface level, but screen level conversation about these characters, about the story, and about their emotional truths and conversations and, and ways they interact with each other. The other conversation is about the absolute mastery of the medium that Russell T. Davies exhibits. And I don't think you can talk about one without the other. Yeah. You know, I think you're right to say that there are moments that are as stripped down and pure and lacerating as theater. I also think that you're right to say that it, it just doesn't have some of the frippery that period pieces tend to do. There's not the montage of, you know, punks and Oxford Circus or whatever, or whatever you need to let people know what's going on. But there's also these decisions that he made that I can't get over decisions like that feel almost greedy, but it's because he's so good at this. He can do it. I mean, start here. The American version of it's a sin, which travels from 1980, follows characters from 1981 to 1991 would be at minimum a 10 hour show. More Mm -hmm. likely it would be a five season show. You could get an entire season of television out of the first episode of it's a sin. Yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't because he knows exactly the story he wants to tell and he just gets it gets it done. And there is a confidence in that kind of storytelling that I don't ever see in American creators and showrunners. And you see it in years and years, His other show that I'm watching now, where he's just like, I'm just going to gobble up this whole bit here and use it because that's all I want to do. And I don't need to to belabor it or find my way into it. You know, it's all right here. And then the next part of what he does that I think leads us back to that conversation you wanted to, to talk about is he he doesn't just know how to make tv he knows how everyone watches it and so mm-hmm. he does these just outrageous rope-a-dopes. and we talked a little bit about it last week but everything that happens in episode 3 with colin your mind your heart and your body are screaming that this is a mistake yeah because he doesn't have it it being hiv or aids he doesn't it's a mistake but he's a victim of this healthcare world and this ignorance and the hatred of any homosexuality and we're doing this because we just don't want it to be true which mirrors the experience of anyone the horror who lived through this and and then when he reveals that it he did and how it was there for us all along if we've been paying attention and bring it full circle to what you're saying i think you and i both saw from the first episode keely hawes really good english actress yeah you see
1: her in the bodyguard and bodyguard was the last line show of we duty talked as well yeah her in, season of Line of Duty is awesome. That's on Hulu if you if you haven't seen it.
2: And she's in the cast. So it's like the sleeping giant. And we see her in the background. And then slowly we realize, okay, she's Richie's mom. And in the the times we see Richie's parents, and I think Sean Dooley is the actor who plays his father. He's fantastic too. Yeah. It Jeez. sets up a dynamic that we are conditioned to expect, which is the father is unemotional, cold, and demanding, and will never accept
1: and the any sad. part of
2: his son. And the mom just cares and loves him so deeply. And why can't he get alone with her so he could be true with her? Right. And the sleeping giant is sleeping. Sleeping giant is sleeping. One episode, two episode, three episode, four. When are we going to do this? Yeah. You know? And meanwhile, concurrently, we're doing the Colin thing again. Richie has to be the person, like Larry Kramer, for example, you know, who was significant in the 80s, came up in this era, and Contracted HIV, but lived long enough to be saved and to be having reflection. So, this story must be Richie's story told in retrospect. And we willfully forget something that Russell Davies has said in interviews, which is the power of the show for him is that none of these people, quote unquote, mattered. They weren't famous. They were just people whose lives mattered to them and to their friends and loved ones. And slowly, we're running out of time in the finale and like, how's this going to turn around? He's going to live. He said so at the end of episode four. And then mom shows up. And drops a nuclear bomb in the middle of the show and explodes its heart in a way that we don't expect and complicates everything and completely changes our perception. Yeah, and it changes the the show
1: itself because the way in which it's shot is so different. You know, it starts and, you know, it starts and it's almost like a a daffy moment in like a TV sitcom moment. The parents unexpectedly arrive in town and blow up this secret that everybody has been keeping from them. Oh, and
2: they come with gifts for Christmas, even though uh-huh. it's November, and there's all a whole bit of business.
1: Right, and Richie's been in the hospital for a little while, because his, his situation is deteriorating, and I am watching that scene, and you're like, I understand how the rules of television work. So this is how this is supposed to go you know, and the dad is going to storm out and the mom is going to keep this all together, but we're going to keep moving forward. Like they're going to, maybe they're going to go out into London and see Richie's life through the eyes of Jill and Ash or something like that. And then Davies locks the door. He locks the door behind you. Once you're in that scene, you're like, okay, so where's, where's my exit, right? Where do I get out of this intense situation? And he just keeps ratcheting it up and ratcheting it up. And, this show, I think if I I don't think I would critique it, but the show is almost too fleet of foot at time. You know, the mm-hmm. show breezes through a decade. It sets up and dispatches with characters, it gets through the changing way that people perceived AIDS in the 80s and into the 90s. Does all this work so quickly and deftly, and then it slams the brakes in the hospital. And it slams the brakes in this scene and essentially what Hork does is start doing these tracking shots of yeah. Valerie, Richie's mom, walking up and down the hall of this infectious disease ward, having these different conversations, these different scenes. And there's, I think, two or three shots for about 10 minutes of footage where she goes from the hospital room to screaming at the the nurse. Then she's grabbed by Jill and brought into a sort of private family room where where their conversation is interrupted by the mother of another patient who is kind of like, I've been living with this and I have gallows humor and I'm taking the piss a little bit. And that sets Valerie off. So where she starts blaming Jill for not having told her. And then she storms back into Richie's room and is like, we're taking you home. And that whole sequence, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I just couldn't believe Keely Hawes. I couldn't believe the variety of emotions that she was going through. And the best thing about it was I could never get a North star on how I was supposed to feel. And I think that yes. a lot of people are coming out of this show and they're like, but I have to say, I did not agree with what Lydia said it, or what Jill says at the end. Lydia West is the actress, but I, I didn't agree with what Jill said or I didn't agree with this. And I understand that. Like I definitely do. But I think one of the hardest things that we've been going through as a television watching culture is separating what a character says from what the author of the character's words necessarily believes. And what is true for a character might not be true for the right way to see a situation. But what I was blown away by was that Davies takes these archetypes, the nightingale figure of Jill, the saintly mother of Valerie, and really, really fucking complicates them over the last 30 minutes of a show
2: he has the grace. I agree with you totally. He has the grace to let every character be wrong, make mistakes, even yeah. to be almost monstrous. Um, Richie's denial and shame as it is revealed in the finale led to him most likely infecting many other people Yeah. for as awful as Valerie has been and can be. She is his mother and she holds him because she doesn't care if he's infectious. She loves him, you know, in her way. And, you know, I, I think that what Davies does that I'm so in awe of, and it's highlighted in, in, what, in the, sec, the section that you're speaking to, is he somehow finds a bridge between um, two incredibly difficult poles, which I think are the goal of, of making TV. When you're writing a script, and this is not wisdom from me, this is just kind of something that people often repeat, characters have to want things, mm-hmm. you know, or else you don't have drama, you don't have action, you don't have momentum, um, you don't have scenes in every scene. What does th- what does this character want and and what does this character want? That sometimes runs afoul of reality. Because in reality, if we're being honest, nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. Nobody knows. Yeah. And
1: nobody also knows. what they what they want can change because there is a chain reaction in their interaction with another person.
2: Yeah. And so so what he somehow manages, the needle he manages to thread here in this whole series is gives us people who who clearly want things, have deep dreams and passions and the agony of, of of the realization that they just won't get to have them is so, so painful. I mean, I said that the show wrecked me. It did. I, I, I would think about it after watching an episode, lying awake at night, feeling just devastated, wake up thinking about it, still thinking about it, but also just present their just almost radical humanity where they were kids. Nobody knew. And, you know, for as vicious as the show is, towards bigots of all stripes conservatives people like richie's mom Mm -hmm. you know and she just gets walloped at the end by jill there is still room in whether it's Davy's heart or the show's heart to at least grant them the humanity that maybe they didn't know any better to. you know and 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 i think that's why I, i you know i i i struggle to Fully articulate my admiration and and love of this show because it just it just messed me up, you know. Yeah. I I and and this is a period of time we should say. where I sometimes I think we are a little bit older than our listenership. Maybe that's not not the case, you know. But we were you and I were kids in the eighties. We weren't living in New York or in London. I don't think either of us were that particularly connected to gay culture or to you know the crisis of of, of life that that emerged with AIDS, but near the end of high school, like I volunteered at a group in Philadelphia called Action Aids. It was on people's radar, popular songs and, you know, people that we really admired talked about it. But this is my own failing. I didn't, maybe it's also being a kid and feeling in, invincible, but there was, there was a piece missing, you know, in my yeah. understanding. And when I watch this and I feel, yo- I see young people get bulldozed by cruelty. And fate you know and, and 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 the most monstrous virus imaginable it it just kind of un unlocked something and and undid something in me,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that you and I grew up in very similar situations where we were going to like private school in Philadelphia, Quaker schools, where there was a pretty progressive, I would imagine sexual education, if not curriculum, at least like a uh, culture of sexual education,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we grew up at a time where
2: did your school teach erotic thrillers like mine my-
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we watched we watched sliver
2: it was an elective but
1: we uh but I, I i was just my wife and i were talking about this last night like i grew up thinking like sex could definitely kill you you know like that was definitely one of the mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the temple ideas that you were introduced to as you were coming into like your sexual awakening mm-hmm. was that this might kill you or you might get somebody pregnant and they might not be able to get an abortion because of the politics of this country. And so, the, like, I think there was a lot of fear coming into our, like, flowering or whatever the hell you want to call it, like like our, our adulthood. And I remember, like, watching Pearl Jam Unplugged and Eddie Vedder writing Pro Choice on his arm at the end mm-hmm. of the concert, like, when they were playing their last song. And I was like, that was like, th- there's that and then there's like, imagine being 18 and going to like, heaven nightclub in London (laughs) and and how different those two experiences must be. You know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't even begin to quantify what that effect that would have on you growing up.
2: But also, um, it's also a testament to the power of really good art, which I think this show is. It's one thing to be talked to, uh, or lectured on, or educated about. Those are not, it was great when Michael Stipe wore eight t-shirts promoting important causes. I agreed with those causes, whether they were gay rights or environmental um, action. But there's a surface level of communication there. It's Again, it's not, it's not Michael Stipe's fault. It's not, you know, it's ultimately it was my fault for not learning more about things or understanding them in my bones or empathetically in my life. But I think that that's what art can do. You know, it can actually bring you into, the boots of someone going to these nightclubs and seeing their entire futures mm-hmm. cut down like a scythe, you know? And so that's that's also why, you know, probably, you know, when they when they do when Sorkin writes the biopic about this podcast, uh <laughs> watching It's a Sin while watching WandaVision <laughs> may come up. <laughs> I I'm trying to interrogate my own emotional reactions here, and I think just One show, they're not the same. It's great. Hopefully everyone watches and enjoys both. I would never argue that one is more important than the other in people's lives because everyone needs a lot of different things all the time. That's not for me to say. But I do think that some of my vehemence or my exasperation came from having the wind knocked out of me by something so powerful and wishing that the superlatives of the culture were turned towards that. That's not fair, but I do think that watching the show at this moment influenced perhaps unfairly, my reading of another show.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that the other thing I was thinking about, this is unfair again, but the It's a Sin WandaVision connection is the difference between surprise and twist and the difference between being genuinely taken aback by something that happens or something that somebody says versus just having that thing weaponized against you or having that surprise weaponized against you is really quite quite a juxtaposition you know and and that doesn't even necessarily have to be some huge plot twist as much as it's just like a sentiment like i i i mentioned this to you on a text message but my holy shit moment of this show probably aside from most of the second half of the last episode is when richie goes to the the riot or the demonstration that turns into like a a police you know confrontation with the police in london he said he wasn't going to go and he shows up and uh gets bloodied in his fight with the police and that's what forces him to reveal that he has hiv to his uh to his friends and there's this moment where it's like oh this this somber thing and then the next cut it, you know it's it's his saying like i'm going to live and then they hard cut to heaven as a place on earth as they go to the credits and you, you just know right then that that's not going to be what happens you know what i mean like that and that that setup, it's almost like that moment of pure triumph is when you understand the tragedy.
2: But it's also the I think you understand the importance of hope, you know, because he, it's absolutely a bright, radiant, beautiful truth to him in that moment. Mm-hmm. It is a life-changing pivot, even if his life isn't that
1: And he never long. really lets that go. Like he never no, lets he, that that sentiment he, really go, even in his and, last speech.
2: And and it's it's these constantly brilliant consistently brilliant creative decisions that just uh broaden and deepen the experience and 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 i'm thinking previously in that episode episode four you know he goes back to the isle of Wight ostensibly to talk to his parents he's unable to do so he goes out and he basically cruises his high school crush yeah who is a, a bartender a bartender in a local in you know, the isle of Wight. and again davies knows what he's doing he knows that our expectation is that this is going to go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. That Richie will say some. he's getting drunk, he's going to say something off or make a pass. This and, guy's going to beat him
1: up or something. Yeah. yeah.
2: And, you know, once again, Davies makes the more interesting choice. And the guy is put off a little, but also flattered. And also we see in his eyes that he is envious of Richie's comfort with himself, his exciting life, you know. And it's, complicated and it's beautiful and it's surprising and it's 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 everything that the show is um i want to before we wrap up i do there are a couple like smaller specific things that i want yeah, sure. to maybe you have a couple yeah that just i also love the show for these reasons perhaps my favorite low-key thing is that you know this couldn't have been a cheap production i think they filmed in in manchester mostly i think even doubling for london so they didn't have to pay those london Uh, location fees or whatever they are there but they still found time in the midst of this for every moment that richie or jill um or even tertiary characters are in a production of anything they do the production so we see richie in what is clearly doctor who Uh from the 80s yeah, We see Jill in some sort of like body Les Miserables review that is. Well, keeping... I, I,
1: I thought it must be Les Mis, and they couldn't get the rights because she's like, I have a job for life. Like, it's just going to run it, forever.
2: It's that version. It's something like that, you know? Yeah. But they created it. And there's something, there's something so wonderful in like Theater Kid, let's just do it to that. And with these little like gags within gags, that it just made me, it was delightful. You know, it, it is the spirit of the young people living in the Pink Palace writ large in this show. I think also worth mentioning, um, there are people in the, like Neil Patrick Harris is in the first episode, and Stephen Fry, Fry shows yeah. up. Um, we mentioned Keely Hawes, but this show makes stars. You know, Ali Alexander is the frontman for a very popular band in the UK called Years and Years. He's incredible. It's a beautiful uh, leading performance. This is Amari Douglas, who plays Roscoe's first screen gig and hmm. would like to see him in everything. Lydia West, who you mentioned, plays Jill, and she was in years and years previously. It, it, it's a challenging, sometimes thankless part because it is not her story. Neither is her story. There's some criticism that I've read, you know, talk about how, and 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 thankfully they they kind of hang a lantern on it. They, um, in that, uh, Richie's mom basically says this to her in the finale, but Jill doesn't seem to have any life of her own. Her 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 greatest passion seems to be caring for these boys, not pursuing any kind of romance or anything outside. Lydia West is just so effortless; you believe all of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you know, we we often, whenever we rave about stuff, we it, it they they do tend to be projects that just launch people into the stratosphere. That's fun to watch, and I feel like we're onto one here.
1: Yeah, uh, the only thing I wanted to mention was how impressed I was that how Davies is able to tell the story of a decade through these really small supporting characters. So the way you kind of see the way the medical community is responding to AIDS change over the course of time based on the interactions with different doctors throughout the show. So that by the end of it, it's a doctor who is having banter with Richie about like whether or not Richie's going to have a wank, like thinking about him or something like, and you know, they're, they're actually like, they are engaged with AIDS as like for what it is and not like, as if it's this like plague that is being handed down from heaven to take take,
2: judgment. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I also thought you could see that in uh I God, there's no wasted space in the show. The Richie's agent who shows up in three scenes. Um yeah. and the played, final played one Tracy Ann Oberman. And the final one is when she goes to drop off some money to to so that Jill and um and Roscoe can go to Isle of Wight. Uh she's just like, you need to go say goodbye. You know, like and she has like this very, very, very short piece of dialogue. And it's exactly what this character has already known. Like she said, like a lot of boys are leaving and going home and then they never come back. She says that to Richie a couple episodes previously. And it's like the, the consistency of her character to show up three times in a show and always yep. have something incredibly important to say, but not overdoing it. It's like, that's not too many people can write like that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's also fun once you've seen the show, which I imagine people who are listening this much have, there are a couple sort of meta things that... that um you know, I I, I didn't appreciate or, or or notice, but um, the character Donald Bassett, who is mm-hmm. Richie's boyfriend in, in an earlier episode, is played by the actor Nathaniel Hall, who is uh, very out about being HIV positive himself. Oh. Um, the woman who plays Colin's mother, Jill Nalder, is a well known in the UK anyway, uh, Welsh actress, but also AIDS activist, and the character of Jill's mother in the show is played by the real Jill's mother. Russell Davies friend who inspired the character so there's there's a there's it, it's kind of it's the sort of stuff that doesn't matter when you're watching it mm-hmm. but it just when you're done and you're sort of it's resonating and you're appreciating it just the level of care and thought that went into it I, I would you know I Alison Herman had an interview with Russell Davies we recommended and we retweeted I would check out other things that he said about the show just because this is something that he's he lived through to a degree himself in the eighties, and then kind of needed to wait almost forty years to make the show, mm-hmm. and you can tell. So I, I mean, we we loved it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if yeah. that's been clear.
1: <laughs> yeah, we will uh, wrap it up there. We'll be back on Monday. Uh, do, do you notice that I have resettled my office at the Sturgis I can't Motor Rally? That we slash, we finished the conversation right when the car alarm started going off. It's
2: kind of beautiful.
1: Uh, we'll wrap it up there we'll be back on Monday to talk about WandaVision and uh, are we
2: going to talk about coming to America? sure anything you want it's a damn shame what they did to that dog (laughs)
1: I'm
2: ready great weekend for (laughs)